Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. Everything's running smoothly. Yo, yo, yo! Yo! What is going on? My name's Hartzell, and this ride here, it's your KC Morning Show, baby! What's the word? Kansas City. I can't say. So far, so good. Got my uh, my booster. Got my flu. Moderna mania running wild, brother. And thank you to all of the uh, the nice folks who were complimenting my post on on the socials. You know, I had to post the picture of me getting the shot. How else will the world know that I got my uh, my, my shot? So thank you to everyone that said my uh, my COVID picture was in fact a thirst trap. Put the trap in thirst is what a commenter said. Thank you very much. So on the show today, we take back America, myself, Professor Harvey K, and a cameo from one kitty. Talking about Susan B. Anthony on the show today. Do me a solid. Rate, review, subscribe, leave a review, all that good stuff. We love you. We appreciate you. So let's tell the world what we got going on. That sound like a plan? All right, y'all. My name's Hartzell. Conditions ideal. A good day to be a Kansas City. And yeah, always, always, we'll see you in the morning. Let's take back America. January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News special report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Cityans must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. Professor Harvey K, my brother. There he is. I tell you what, man. I tell you what. For someone who should be, you know, relaxing in the twilight, I feel like you're hitting the road more now than you've ever done. Hitting the road sounds terrible when I'm driving long distances, I can tell you. <laughs> well, I guess as long as I'm not hitting another car, I'm okay. St. Louis again, and, and obviously, it's funny, St. Louis, and how long does it take to get from Kansas City to St. Louis? Uh, about three and a half, four hours. Uh, that's too long. I couldn't dare allow you to make that drive over. For you, Harvey K., I will, I will make that drive, even through downtown St. Louis, which is its own version of hell. I would still. I'm usually on the west side of St. Louis, so you don't have to go through the downtown. Next time, meet me in St. Louis. What's in the middle between St. Louis and Kansas City? I, I don't have a map in front of me. How about we stop at the university? Let's go to Columbia. You can no, walk I've never seen the university. That would be interesting. 1839? I don't know if it's a land-grant college or not, but I know we got a statue of Jefferson, so that's pretty neat. By the way, the university could have existed and then been awarded land-grant status. I went to Rutgers. Rutgers was founded in 1766, but in 1860s, it became the land-grant university of New Jersey. The story I, I was told was that Princeton and Rutgers were both competing for this. How it was that Rutgers beat the WASP elite 
at Princeton, I don't know. What is the mascot of Rutgers? The Scarlet Knights. Scarlet Knights. I can see it now. Professor K in a, a nice scarlet turtleneck going to the football. <laughs> no, 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 no. Rah, rah, rah. You know what? This is funny. When I was at Rutgers as an undergraduate, that's 67 to 71, at least in the first couple of years, just about everyone went in shirt and tie. Yeah, you put on a blazer and a shirt and tie. It was very, very Ivy kind of thing. Can I admit something, Professor K? And I'm going to sound very elitist and, you know, dare you call me bourgeois, but I love that idea. When I'm on a plane, I like getting dressed up. Maybe that's the romanticism of it all for me. Well, it's interesting. Okay, and for me, I like wearing a blazer, okay? Much prefer, as you know, a turtleneck or even a round neck kind of t-shirt. Miami Vice style, you know? <laughs> oh, Harvey Cool. Weekdays on CBS. I'm looking around though, Professor K. We're talking about, you know, what we're wearing. I don't see a, a cheese a cheese head anywhere. Where, where's that at? I thought she might have pulled hers out for this week. Look, I'm not. Definitely not. <laughs> Come on. I know somewhere back in the closet, you tried to hide it away, but you've got that cheese head. I know you do. You know, if I could reach through this computer right now <laughs> and wring your neck next time you say that. <laughs> Wait, hey, let me bring it back then, because congrats on your win as well. And congrats right. to you. Yeah, so let's just make it clear. So what's your record right now, the Chiefs? We're now 6-4, and four, atop of the AFC West, might I add, Professor K. Beating us really began the turnaround for you guys. Honestly, you're right. When they make the DVD, <laughs> you're right. But I also will tell you that we are the Green Bay Packers' number one seed right now. We are 8-2. and two. The funny thing is, it's that first game was just abysmal against the Saints. Last week's game, well, you and I talked about that enough. I mean, you guys deserve to win, but more importantly, it was a bad week for the Packers, and somehow we prevailed. Bad week because Aaron Rodgers lied to people, lied to his teammates. In fact, you know what was weird? Yesterday, apparently, after the victory, he was no mask. He was going around kissing his teammates and all that. I heard that the Packers are going to sign Joe Rogan to a coaching staff position. Quarterback coach, in fact, right. <laughs> Quarterback, Quarterback coach. coach. What a tragedy that we witnessed. And it would have been great to see Love triumph over the Chiefs a week ago and start the Love era. Doesn't that sound like a 60s thing? The Love era. A tie-dye jersey. That's what we need for Love. Yeah. I never wore tie-dye. Oh, I'm about to go down this rabbit hole. Okay, Professor K, what was your summer of love fit, my friend? So actually, at that time, I actually owned a couple of suits. The wider lapel. It wasn't exactly bells, but they were sort of boot cut on the pants. Did I wear a tie, a shirt and tie, or was I actually wearing... Probably, I, you know what? Even though I wasn't religious about turtlenecks then, I probably still wore turtleneck sweater under those things i love that we're now breaking down the fashion of one professor harvey k we take some walks on this segment but we're so much better for it professor k you know what we do every tuesday on this show we take back america my friend and as we take a look back because we're gonna go back and do a deep dive into history as much as i love doing our current events and talking about the news of the day that was awesome and we'll get back to that in fact you could probably call this a hybrid show because what we're talking about is happening in plain sight right now Today, we're going to do Susan B. Anthony, the great suffragist. And we would have done it sooner, but we were waiting for the voice of Kitty, Miss Holyhearts. And she's going to provide the voice of Susan B. Anthony in her speech, the speech we're going to be addressing today. Is it a crime for a citizen of the United States to vote? And you know, this is a very timely speech. I have a feeling two years ago, even, even though voter suppression has been going on for years, the conservative politics of the Republican Party has led them ever since the Voting Rights Act to constantly push to rescind or subvert the Voting Rights Act. 
but most especially what we've seen in the wake of 2020 election and the Republicans' determination to suppress the vote by way of laws passed not only in the South, but a number of places that would empower Republican legislatures to overturn, to reduce the ability of folks to vote. I mean, it's just terrible. I mean, what we've witnessed. Again, who would have thought we would need to pass a new Voting Rights Act? after the struggles, the bloody struggles of the early and mid-60s that led to the Voting Rights Act of, of 1965. But here we are. So the title of this speech by Susan B. Anthony stood out in a whole new way. I mean, I, I admired this speech to begin with because as people will see, there's a link to Thomas Paine in it. But think about the title of the speech. Is it a crime for a citizen of the United States to vote? That's as timely as you can get. And this was a speech that Susan B. Anthony was delivering to defend her own actions, which we'll get into in a moment, back in 1873, she was giving this speech. The powers that be, they can't take away your right to vote after the fact. So now they're doing that before you can even make it to the polls. This voter suppression law in Texas. I mean, all these folks who are yelling and screaming and seemingly having nothing they can do to fix this. And the Supreme Court is doing nothing to fix this. You know, the law as it exists in Texas, if this goes into effect, is enough to put fear into the hearts and minds of people, to keep them from voting. You know, all of these laws are being passed by Republican legislators who are also doing their damnedest to make sure everybody carries a gun in public. So seriously speaking, what we're talking about is using the law and fear, which, by the way, was always the device of, of white supremacists. Let's turn to Susan B. Anthony. Born in February 1820, to be precise, February 15th, 1820. She had a, what we would today call a progressive family she was born into. And as a consequence of the ties and, and friendships of her father, she actually met the two leading abolitionists of the day when she was very young. It was William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass. We've dealt with Frederick Douglass a few weeks ago. I think it's a few weeks. Ever since the <laughs> pandemic began, time is a difficult thing to keep hold of and control of, okay? But Susan B. Anthony herself, I mean, she grew up in a family of abolitionists, but she began really as an activist for temperance to try to suppress drinking. Drinking was seen as something that would lead men to hurt their wives, to spend their money. I mean, it's all this kind of stuff. And so temperance at that time was a movement to try in many ways to protect women against the dangers of a husband who would be caught up in alcoholism or would come home and take it out on his wife if he was angry or just drunk. And I mention this because we date the beginnings of the suffragist. We really date the beginnings of organized feminism in the United States to 1848, to Seneca Falls, and the issuance of the Declaration of Sentiments based on the Declaration of Independence, another document that we covered some weeks ago, and, and particularly referred to Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who in many ways is really the first of the modern sort of 19th century feminist. Well, eventually, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony will meet, but it's not at Seneca Falls. Susan B. Anthony was not present at Seneca Falls. She was not yet in the movement, you might say. However, Susan B. Anthony's mother and sister were at Seneca Falls. That's what I've read. And it's not until 1851, however, that Susan B. Anthony and, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton meet, and it begins a friendship and a comradeship which is essential to the making of the suffrage movement, the feminism of the 19th century targeting the right to vote. 
And I say it's that important because Elizabeth Cady Stanton was a wife and a mother. She couldn't go out and get, deliver lectures around the country. So her task in many ways was to be, if you like, the sort of the pen. And she could organize, but she couldn't go out and give lectures because that involved going on a lecture circuit, a tour. Susan B. Anthony was neither married nor a mother, and she could do that. And she became the journeyman, so to speak. She was out there lecturing. And what's curious about that is that in 1854, Susan B. Anthony went on a lecture tour in favor of women's rights. I think it was mostly in the middle Atlantic states. And what's notable is that the woman whom she asked to serve as her secretary, and as secretary would also have helped write her speeches, was a woman named Ernestine Rose. And I have to admit, I can't remember if we mentioned Ernestine Rose when we dealt with Elizabeth Cady Stanton or not. But I'll just repeat that Ernestine Rose is interesting because she was born in Poland. She was a Polish Jew, and she ran away from home as a young woman, a teenager, I expect, and made her way to Germany. And in Germany, she actually became a scent maker, S-C-E-N-T. She made perfumes and developed quite a remarkable reputation doing so. In time, she moved to London. That was her next stop. This is amazing for a young woman who, teenager in the 19th century. And in London, she meets Henry Rose. They got married and they together were producing these perfumes. And they decided they were going to come to the United States. They were going to emigrate to the United States. And they arrived in the United States. And the reason I want to make a big deal about her is that she was probably the foremost champion of women's rights in that moment and was also the head of the Thomas Paine Society in New York. And every year they would hold huge events to celebrate his birthday. And she would give a speech every year. I have a collection of her speeches somewhere behind me in, in this room. And the tragedy of all this is, in spite of that, she was an ardent abolitionist, an ardent advocate for women's rights, was regularly on platforms alongside men, which was not usually a, an acceptable thing to do. When it came time for the women's movement to truly organize, I do not believe she was actually invited to Seneca Falls. There was an element of anti-Semitism, I think, in those white Anglo-Saxon Protestant women, in spite of the fact that they welcomed Frederick Douglass to Seneca Falls. There was an element of anti-Semitism. Susan B. Anthony, however, she invites Ernestine Rose to be her secretary and to travel with her to help her organize the speeches, organize events. And one can readily imagine that maybe that's where Susan B. Anthony herself picked up her interest and affection for the words of Thomas Paine. After the Civil War in 1866, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony together organized the American Equal Rights Association. Now, the tragic side of this is that the American Equal Rights Association in some ways opposed the 15th Amendment, which granted African-American men the right to vote. 13th Amendment ended slavery, the 14th Amendment was a guarantee of certain rights, and the 15th Amendment assured the right to vote. Now, why did they do that? Because they were outraged that Congress would advance a voting rights amendment that did not include women. So they said, don't pass it until it does. Fortunately, Congress and the American states did actually enact the 15th Amendment. Well, in 1869, another organization, a smarter organization, the National Women's Suffrage Association. Along the way, both Stanton, I believe, and Anthony, I know for a fact Anthony, actually took part in what was called the National Labor Union, which was an organization to promote the interests of working people and the emergent labor movement. It wasn't exactly unions that went out to sort of organize in the workplace, to my knowledge, but really to push 
political legislation that would enhance the rights and status of working people. The strategy of the National Women's Suffrage Association was very interesting. And this brings us to the heart of the matter here. They weren't just pushing for legislation for the right to vote for women. They actually decided that the Constitution already granted women the right to vote. Let me read you the 15th Amendment as to where they might well think that. Article 15, 1870. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Section two, the Congress shall have the power to enforce the article by appropriate legislation. Think about that. It says the right of citizens. Ah, well, women were citizens, so it should have been assumed as the National Women's Suffrage Association leaders did, that women had the right to vote. So they were pushing, in New York State at least, for women to go register to vote. And up in the Rochester area, several dozen did so. And in the election of 1872, 50 women who had registered were on the verge of voting. Now, Susan B. Anthony and 14 other women actually did. They went to the polling place and they convinced the men who were, if you like, the attendants at the polling place, that they had the right to vote. And the men let them vote. I mean, they voted when it was, by any federal understanding of the law, illegal. And as a consequence, a couple of weeks later, on November 18th, 1872, Susan B. Anthony was arrested. Immediately, knowing the trial was upcoming, she began a speaking tour of that upstate region of New York State, explaining why she did nothing illegal, and that she had the right to vote. And that is titled, the lecture, Is It a Crime for a Citizen of the United States to Vote? As I've been reading about this, most people think this is the most significant women's rights speech of the 19th century, quite possibly. The trial was held in June of 1873. It got a lot of national coverage, a lot of press coverage. The judge was not exactly sympathetic to Susan B. Anthony. And in the course of the trial, he did call for a guilty verdict. And Susan B. Anthony spoke in her defense and delivered that same speech. Is it a crime for the citizen of the United States to vote? Well, ultimately, she was found guilty and fined $100, which today would be at least a couple to a few thousand dollars. Not insignificant. However, she never paid it. Good for her. Good for her, right. In 1875, the Supreme Court ruled in a case that the 15th Amendment does not grant women the right to vote. Once again, I'll read this. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. They claim, since it did not mention women as being unable to be denied the vote, that it just stood that they were denied the vote. So it's worth noting, however, that Susan B. Anthony was not to be deterred. And for the rest of her life, she was out there delivering those speeches, demanding women's right to vote. She passed away in, in 1906, 14 years before the final passage and enactment of the Women's Suffrage Amendment, the 19th Amendment that became part of the Constitution in 1920. Again, who would have thought we would have had to choose this speech? Is it a crime for a citizen of the United States to vote? The speech alone, how much more powerful for the moment can you get, right? And beyond that, she actually did vote. I mean, I think that's amazing when you think about it, right? And was arrested. I'd like to know where. Did they show up at her home? 
the restaurant on the street. I'd like to know what she said, what the group of women said to the men who were basically the poll workers. I'm going to give you a homework assignment. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's turn to the speech. And in this instance, let's be thankful that we now have the voice of a woman to deliver these words. We can't read the whole speech. We can't have Kitty read the whole speech. Much too long to do that. But we can hear the first few paragraphs. These are not short, people. Stick with us. Handing the microphone over to Kitty right now to read the speech, Is It a Crime for a Citizen of the United States to Vote? The speech that Susan B. Anthony delivered repeatedly in the course of 1873 in defense of her right to vote. So take it away, Kitty. Friends and fellow citizens, I stand before you tonight under indictment for the alleged crime of having voted at the last presidential election without having a lawful right to vote. It shall be my work this evening to prove to you that in thus voting, I not only committed no crime, but instead simply exercised my citizen's right, guaranteed to me and all United States citizens by the National Constitution beyond the power of any state to deny. Our democratic Republican government is based on the idea of the natural right of every individual member, thereof to a voice and a vote in making and executing the laws. We assert the province of government to be to secure the people and the enjoyment of their unalienable rights. We throw to the winds that old dogma that governments can give rights. Before governments were organized, no one denies that each individual possessed the right to protect his own life, liberty, and property. And when a hundred or a million people enter into a free government, they do not barter away their natural rights. They simply pledge themselves to protect each other and the enjoyment of them through prescribed judicial and legislative tribunals. They agree to abandon the methods of brute force in the adjustment of their differences and adopt those of civilization. Nor can you find a word in any of the grand documents left us by the fathers that assumes for government the power to create or to confer rights. The Declaration of Independence, the United States Constitution, the constitutions of the several states and the organic laws of the territories, all alike propose to protect the people in the exercise of their God-given rights. Not one of them pretends to bestow rights. All men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these... Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Here is no shadow of government authority over rights, nor exclusion of any from their full and equal enjoyment. Here is pronounced the right of all men and, consequently, as the Quaker preacher said, of all women, to a voice in the government. And here, in this very first paragraph of the Declaration, is the assertion of the natural right of all to the ballot. How can the consent of the governed be given if the right to vote be denied? That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it, and to institute a new government, laying its foundations on such principles, and organizing its powers in such forms as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Surely, the right of the whole people to vote is clearly implied. Kitty, that was great. Thank you very much, okay? There's one more piece. There's one more piece that I think we really ought to hear. And let me just make it clear. This is the reason I discovered this speech. 
you might say. It was well-known speech, but I personally discovered it from my own work when I was writing the book Thomas Paine and the Promise of America because everyone had denied that anyone ever remembered Thomas Paine for generations. But we discover very clearly that in every single movement of a progressive or radical sort in American history, Thomas Paine became a champion, a hero of the movement. And here we have Susan B. Anthony defending her right to vote by quoting Thomas Paine. Let's have Kitty read that too. And yet, one more authority, that of Thomas Paine, than whom not one of the revolutionary patriots more ably vindicated the principles upon which our government is founded. The right of voting for representatives is the primary right by which other rights are protected. To take away this right is to reduce man to a state of slavery. For slavery consists in being subject to the will of another. And he that has not a vote in the election of representatives is in this case. The proposal, therefore, to disfranchise any class of men is as criminal as a proposal to take away property. Elizabeth Cady Stanton in 1848, Susan B. Anthony in 1872 and 3, really made the case for women's rights and the right to vote especially. And yet it would take all the way until 1920 before we got around, we, I say we because it's we the people, right? We got around to actually acknowledging a woman's right to vote and entering it into the Constitution as the 19th Amendment. I guess, Harvey, when I'm thinking back, and I guess some of the takeaways I have is just that amount of time. She's defending her right as an American citizen, and it took so much time before that amendment was passed, the 19th Amendment. And I'm thinking now, as we have these laws getting enacted, folks are just yelling and screaming, rightfully so, for someone just to have our back and, I mean, save democracy. I guess I'm just terrified that how much time was it going to take for us to get that progressive change to just restore what we had to begin with as progressives it seems like we're in a low point well in some ways we're at a high point that's the irony of it given the presence of bernie sanders as a socialist and heading the budget committee in the u.s senate um, we have socialists in the house of representatives but but it is the case that it's so close and yet so far I mean, here we've had for weeks now, we've talked about a set of infrastructure plans, both physical and social infrastructure, that's essentially been blocked by a couple of Democratic senators and a host of Democratic representatives in the House of Representatives. And we could do everything we needed to do if indeed we could just literally either carve out or throw out the filibuster. I say carve out, you could do a carve out allowing certain kinds of laws not to be subject to the filibuster, or you could throw out the filibuster. It's not in the Constitution. It's like the tradition, the custom, the code of the U.S. Senate. But seriously speaking, if we got rid of the filibuster, we could push a new Voting Rights Act, the PRO Act to empower workers once again in the workplace, and really to pass what should be at the least a several trillion dollar refurbishment plan for the United States. I mean, it's so odd that we should be this close, and yet so far. But I also want to remind everyone, I think we talked about this last week, that it didn't have to be this way. If the Biden administration, President Biden and his vice president, Kamala Harris, who I still don't know where she is, by the way, where in the world is Kamala Harris? Hartzell's breaking up from You got me. You got me. I'm seeing a cartoon. Where in the world is Kamala Harris? Pete Buttigieg, the whole cast of characters, not one of whom is ever going to be my champion, by the way, or, or my hero, but they are my president, vice president. They should have been out there demanding not just action. They should have been calling out American citizens to make sure that their senators and representatives make it happen. And they haven't done that. And the tragedy of the last nine months or 10 months is that it has been 10 months since we've seen serious action on the part of this administration to rally Americans to build back better. 
I, I don't know, Harvey. I guess you can't you can't run as someone who says you have to restore democracy and not try to restore democracy. I want to believe that the next thing he tackles, the administration tackles, is voting rights. But when you blow your political capital on infrastructure and you can't even get that across the line, how is that going to inspire me to believe that we can restore the voting rights, that we can even get back to, I guess, square one? I, absolutely. Look, the Black Lives Matter movement turned out millions. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm exaggerating, but millions of folks. I don't think you are. This is no less pressing for you know for a multiracial or interracial movement to turn out and absolutely make themselves ourselves heard that voting rights are sacred moreover we ought to turn the tuesday of election day every year in november into a national holiday so people can vote they don't have to worry about working all day and then finding the energy to go stand in line in the evening to actually cast their ballot it's amazing how close we get to democracy and how much the powers that be whether they're corporate or white supremacist or whatever else. It's like the struggle, we prevail, but the struggle doesn't end. I mean, that's the best way of looking at it. The struggle doesn't end. Well, hold on. Before I let you go, and this just popped up in my head, and I know you have an answer for me. What Thomas Paine line that we haven't used yet? We've talked about common sense. Let's see here. We talked about the crisis papers. Susan B. Anthony, she quoted Thomas Paine. What's a Thomas Paine line that describes the moment we're in right now? Ready? In Rights of Man, which was the two-part pamphlet that he wrote during the French Revolution, himself directly involved in the French Revolution in the 1790s, he wrote this, when it shall be said in any country, quote, my poor are happy, neither ignorance nor distress is to be found among them, my jails are empty of prisoners, my streets of beggars, the aged are not in want, the taxes are not oppressive, the rational world is my friend because I am a friend of happiness. When these things can be said, then may that country boast of its constitution and its government. That quote is a good way to then to move towards our next figure. So our next figure is going to be Eugene Debs, 1918, in Canton, Ohio. He had been arrested, okay, he had been arrested for speaking out against the draft, the war effort in World War One. He had not been campaigning against it during much of the war, but he had gotten to the point where he was seriously, seriously concerned and had to speak up, he said, about the war and how working people were, working men were being sent to die in this war that was benefiting the powers that be, he felt. And he is arrested, okay? There was a spy in the crowd and they arrested him and he was put on trial. And this particular speech is rather long, but we're going to deal with certain sections of it. He does something in this speech where he grabs hold of history to defend himself. And I don't want to say anything more about that. People will hear us next week do that kind of stuff. Not surprisingly, Thomas Paine is in the picture too. Well, of course. One of my favorite historical figures, second only to one, Professor Harvey K. Professor Emeritus at the University of Wisconsin-Green <laughs> Bay. My brother, where can these folks find you? Well, on Twitter is about the only place they'll find me unless they want to drive to Green Bay. It's H-A-R-V-E-Y-J-K-A-Y-E. Harvey J-K on Twitter. I'll welcome whoever shows up, you might say. Professor K, are you still hopeful, my friend? You still think we got this? Well, I am decidedly anxious. I am seriously worried because we've seen far too much lethargy on the part of this administration. You know, I feel bad, but I feel bad in particular for certain people. I feel bad in particular for people your age and younger who are being ignored regarding the future of this country. We've got selfish capitalists, we've got reactionary politicians, 
We've got greedy Democrats, apparently, who are defending their own pocketbooks, the likes of cinema and mansion, and maybe, maybe others, you know, maybe, maybe Nancy Pelosi is a little too tied into some of these pockets. Who knows? And then I worry also about Bernie. He puts so much into this set of plans, and he must be in agony watching Biden blowing it. The struggle continues, Professor K, and we're back next week. Yes, we'll be back next week to do Eugene Debs, and we'll be able to talk about how you guys do against Dallas <laughs> and how we do against the Minnesota Vikings. I cannot wait. We'll see you next week. Take care. Going straight to one place, right to Kansas City. The KC Morning Show. You're listening to the KC Morning Show.